The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. My greatest happiness is to destroy my enemies, hunt them down, reduce their cities to ashes and their beloveds to tears, and possess their wives and daughters. That gruesome quotation from Genghis Khan was tweeted out on Monday by Simon Seabag Montefiore, one of the world's most popular and respected historians. Why? Because, to his astonishment, to my astonishment, I think to everybody's astonishment, the Pope, of all people, had just paid a rhapsodic tribute to the achievement of Khan's Mongol Empire during his weekend visit to Mongolia. The Supreme Pontiff of the Catholic Church passed over the 40 million deaths caused by the Mongols' barbaric conquest of China and Central Asia, during which Genghis Khan's armies annihilated some of the world's most prosperous cities. Here's how the Times of London reported Francis's remarks. And the correspondent here is Tom Kington, who's normally pretty reliably friendly to Francis. Anyway, he wrote... Pope Francis has praised Genghis Khan's 13th century Mongol Empire for respecting religious freedom and unifying cultures, bypassing Khan's history of massacring enemies as he swept across Asia. The Pope lauded the sprawling empire during his five-day visit to Mongolia, telling local leaders that their all-conquering ancestors had, quote, acknowledged the outstanding qualities of the peoples present in their immense territory, and put those qualities at the service of a common development. Launched by the Mongol ruler Genghis Khan, writes Kington, the empire eventually stretched from modern-day Lithuania to Vietnam, absorbing the learning of local scholars and engineers, safeguarding trade routes and imposing a Pax Mongolica to end local conflicts. Francis said, May heaven grant that today, on this earth devastated by countless conflicts, there be a renewal, respectful of international laws, of the condition of what was once the Pax Mongolica, that is, the absence of conflicts. Huh? The absence of conflicts? As Kington notes, while the empire brought stability, it was created through the large-scale massacre of anyone who refused to submit to Mongol rule, leading to the deaths of millions. Mongol troops triggered famine in Iran by destroying ancient irrigation systems and catapulted diseased corpses into towns they besieged, a technique which reportedly introduced the Black Death into Europe. End quote. The 86-year-old Pope's bizarre and fatuous comments caused a sharp intake of breath around the world. Now, It's not wrong, strictly speaking, to say that the Mongols sometimes left local religious traditions undisturbed. But to suggest that they were manifesting some sort of liberal beneficence, a model for the 21st century, is naive at best and, at worst, alarmingly deluded. Throughout history, what you might call empires of sudden conquest, like the Mongol Empire, have 
frequently practice what you might call religious toleration because their aim is political control and plunder. The religious beliefs of their humiliated vassals are of little interest so long as they don't frighten the horses. The Roman Empire, for example, let people worship whatever gods they chose so long as they did so in a spirit of obedience, which the Christians refused to do. It's a different sort of empire, if you want to call that, a different sort of state, those preoccupied with ethnic or ideological purity that are more likely to persecute believers who threaten that ideal. And we can see it today, for example, in China, where Muslim Uyghur women are subjected to forced abortions as part of a programme of ethnic cleansing. That's quite different from the priorities of Genghis Khan's terrifying invaders. But those two barbarisms, separated by eight centuries, do have one thing in common. Pope Francis won't condemn them. He hasn't said a word about the Uyghur women. He's done a deal with the Chinese Communist Party, which grants it full control over the appointment of official Catholic bishops recognised by Rome. And when loyal Chinese Catholics are herded into so-called masses, where they're effectively worshipping the party, he says nothing. And what's he got in return? Well, on his flight to and from Mongolia, he was permitted to fly through Chinese airspace, a gesture for which he effusively thanked Beijing. And, in unscripted comments during his Mongolian mass, urged Chinese Catholics to be good citizens, which is a not very hard to decrypt code for obeying the Communist Party. So, we have a sycophantic encomium to Genghis Khan's merciless empire, and a general reflection in the direction of a modern merciless superpower. And all this literally within days of the same Pope's tribute to, wait for it, the Russian Empire of the homicidal Peter the Great and his brutal anti-Catholic successors. Let me quote from an article in last weekend's Sunday Times by Dominic Lawson, who's a former editor of The Spectator and almost uniquely among leading Western media commentators, has repeatedly drawn attention to Francis's disturbingly indulgent attitude towards anti-Western dictators. Lawson's article was headed to Russia with love from Pope Francis, and in it he said, Francis is far from being a thorn in the side of President Putin. Quite the opposite. Last week, in an encounter with young Russian Catholics in St. Petersburg, the Pope, via video, read out prepared words telling them to be artisans of peace. Nice. But then he departed from the script with some passion. Quotes, You are the heirs of the great Russia, the great Russia of the saints, of the kings, of the great Russia of Peter the Great, of Catherine II, that great imperial Russia, cultivated with so much culture and humanity, Never forget this inheritance. You are the heirs of the great mother Russia. Go forward. Lawson commented, To say this went down badly in Ukraine, not least among the Pope's fellow Catholics, there would be an understatement. Putin has frequently cited those two imperial Russian rulers in defence of his own view of Ukraine. Catherine was the empress who, by force, brought most of what we know as Ukraine under Russian rule and turned vast numbers of Ukrainian peasants into the personal slaves of favoured Russian nobles. She also, Dominic Lawson points out, tried to extirpate the Ukrainian language. And under Peter the Great, it was said that the whole of Ukraine is bathed in blood. Though, admittedly, 
Peter's barbarism did not spare his own family. He personally oversaw the torture of his son before having him executed. I don't suppose this is the sort of thing the Pope meant when he extemporaneously praised these rulers, great imperial Russia, cultivated with so much humanity. Later in the article, Dominic Lawson says that Francis does seem to have a tendresse for autocracies, and he mentions the wretched deal with the Chinese Communist Party, which was described to him by a distraught Catholic priest as an act of perfidy, stupidity and betrayal. And then there was a detail actually that had escaped me, but I think is very telling. He writes, In 2021, when the Vatican held an extraordinary gathering of the world's faith leaders in the run-up to the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow, calling on governments to take speedy, responsible and shared action to reduce CO2 emissions, the only faith leader who seemed not to have been invited was the head monk of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama. Previous popes had invited him to the Vatican, John Paul II, on several occasions. But Francis, says Lawson, will do nothing that might offend the CCP, which was bizarrely praised in 2018 by the Chancellor of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences, the Pope's fellow Argentinian Bishop Marcelo Sorondo, as assuming a moral leadership which others have abandoned. This was a reference to climate change policy, says Lawson, and he thinks that's why the secular media have given Francis's genreflections to Beijing and Moscow, as he puts it, much less critical scrutiny than you might expect. The Guardian didn't even report on the Pope's endorsement of Russian imperial humanity. And on the day that article was published, I was pleased to read this tweet from the Reverend Marcus Walker, who, in addition to being rector of St Bartholomew the Great in the City of London, is one of the most acute and respected voices on Anglican Twitter. And he said, This article is hugely worrying and pulls together some of the threads I've picked up on over the last few years. Why does the Pope seem to have a soft spot for anti-Western tyrannies? This is an important question, as the papacy was a powerful ally against communism. Well, Marcus... Not anymore, it isn't. Speaking personally, I think what I appreciated most about Dominic Lawson's article was its recognition that there's a problem with the media. There's a problem with so-called Vatican correspondents who consistently turn a blind eye to the Pope's more confusing, incompetent or sometimes sinister actions and statements. And some of them, and this really isn't an exaggeration, are full-time propagandists for progressive lobby groups whom the Pope favours and is allowing to hijack the agenda of next month's Synod on Synodality. That's a different subject. Don't get me started on it. But let me draw your attention to the Pope's in-flight press conference on the way back from Mongolia, during which, of course... The tame press corps didn't press him on the subject of his extraordinary and actually very newsworthy apotheosis of Genghis Khan's empire. No, they asked about their beloved synod, at which point Francis told them that no, the proceedings wouldn't be televised, they'd happen behind closed doors. Despite all the rhetoric about consultation, the Pope will exercise 100% control over the synod's outcome and he doesn't want the world to watch him doing it. Or, to put it another way, he's reminding us that he's the most authoritarian, centralising pontiff of modern times. 
And that, I think, is relevant to what we're talking about. The Bishop of Rome enjoys dictatorial power over both the squalidly corrupt Vatican city-state and the Church as a whole, and that's nothing new. But no Pope in living memory has exercised such total, unyielding and paranoid personal control over every aspect of church government. So perhaps that helps explain his relaxed attitude to other dictatorial rulers. Do you remember him fawning appallingly over the Castro brothers at the beginning of his pontificate? But actually, I don't know, because if I've learned anything over the past 10 years, it's that Jorge Bergoglio throws up one smokescreen after another in order to obscure our view of him. What does he really think about politics, about religion? It's so hard to say. We can only identify one or two strands that run through his pronouncements. And one of the most striking is his anti-Americanism. Let me quote from Rurati Chaley, a very well-informed, though certainly partisan, traditionalist Catholic website, responding to the Genghis Khan episode. It made the point that the estimated 40 million dead as a result of the Mongol invasions was an amount that wouldn't be reached in absolute numbers until the Second World War and has actually never been surpassed in proportion to the global population at the time. So, said Rurati, a despot can be an anti-Catholic freak, such as the bloodiest Tsars, and he or she will be praised by Francis. He can be the greatest mass murderer in history, and he'll also be praised by Francis. But there's one unpardonable crime, being a believing American Catholic. And what Rurati was referring to, in very strong terms, was what we might call the beginning of the Pope's 2023 summer offensive, when he further developed his familiar and really very unpaternal conspiracy theory, which is what it really is, ascribing all sorts of malevolence to American Catholics. Francis was being interviewed last month at World Youth Day, and he had this to say about the United States. There is a very strong reactionary attitude there. It is organised and shapes the way people belong, even emotionally. Being backward-looking, said the Pope, is useless and we need to understand that there's an appropriate evolution in the understanding of matters of faith and morals. And he condemned a climate of closure in the US in which you can lose true tradition and turn to ideologies for support. In other words, ideology replaces faith, membership of a sector of the church replaces membership of the church. Instead of living by doctrine, by the true doctrine that always develops and bears fruit, they live by ideologies. When you abandon doctrine in life to replace it with an ideology, you have lost as in war. And this, let me remind you, from a Pope who has surrendered his authority in China to the Communist Party and refuses to say a word condemning that regime. Now, in the past, Francis's attacks on American Catholics have been pretty obviously directed at the small but vibrant traditionalist community, which he's desperately trying to suppress at the moment with the aid of his pompous Yorkshire liturgy chief, Arthur Roach. But this is different, because it's not specific. It seems to be directed at all Orthodox American Catholics, 
and it provoked a very interesting and very anxious response from J.D. Flynn, who's editor-in-chief of The Pillar, which is conservative but not traditionalist, I think I would say. And incidentally, he's a canon lawyer on whose professional advice Arthur Roach drew in order to tighten his restrictions on the Latin mass. Responding to the Pope's outburst, Flynn wrote this. First, I think the pontiff should be congratulated. As Pope, he has spent exactly six days in the United States and has managed, apparently, to make some very definite conclusions about at least some of the 60 million Catholics living in the US. But second, I should say I agree with the Pope. I think there are definitely ideologues living among us, and I'm glad the Pope has recognised that. But here's the problem. I have no idea who the pontiff is actually targeting. Neither do they rather than make a deliberate, definitive, forward-facing correction of the theological, cultural, or pastoral tendencies of some American Catholics, the Pope has cast unspecified side-eyes at, you know, those people over there. Later in the article, J.D. Flynn says, I am not a liturgical traditionalist. I go to Novus Ordo Masses offered by priests who don't wear amices. I pray like a Latin American Pentecostal. I like Dorothy Day more than Fulton Sheen. My politics veer well outside the bipartisan mainstream, but I try to be Catholic and to hold the teachings of the faith, and for that reason a fair number of people would call me a conservative. Does the Pope mean people like me? And my response would be, yes, J.D., he does mean people like you, because you're theologically orthodox and you're American, and that's enough. But... It's not enough to explain why the Pope's dislike of the United States verges on, indeed crosses over, into the pathological. Is it an Argentinian thing? No country in Latin America is so ill-disposed towards America. As Flynn says, he's spent just six days in the United States, and that's not just in his pontificate, that's in his entire life. And that does seem rather Argentinian, but then his relationship with his home country is rather complicated, isn't it? He hasn't set foot there since becoming Pope, and probably never will, and we still haven't got to the bottom of it. One important factor, I think, is that Francis doesn't speak English, not even moderately well. So, obviously, he's dependent on other people to tell him what's going on in the English-speaking world. And many of his advisers have their own rather crude ideological agendas. Or they're just frightened of him, I think, and tell him what he wants to hear. But they can't, at least not consistently, because Francis makes damn sure that they won't be able to guess precisely what he wants to hear. We know from many testimonies from people who dealt with him earlier in his career that he loves to manipulate. He loves to keep people on their toes and also that he's a genuine loner. He consults people only when it suits him. And I think we can be absolutely certain that he didn't consult, for example, anybody in the Secretariat of State about some of the weirder opinions he's been airing recently. So where does this leave us? Well, I think it leaves the Catholic Church in desperate trouble, something that will become painfully clear during next month's synod, irrespective of Francis's attempts to keep their proceedings secret. But it does also leave me open to the charge that I'm constructing a caricature of Francis that's really as unfair as his caricature of, say, Americans. And I can see that. 
And I think that Francis's critics, and I'm certainly one of them, need to acknowledge that some of his opinions about capitalists, about traditionalists, are rooted in encounters with very unpleasant people. The problem is one of balance. And I hope that even people better disposed towards Francis than I am can see that this problem exists. Here is a man who is driven more by his dislikes, verging on hatred, than by his enthusiasms or his ideals. I'm like that too, but then I'm not Pope. And I think this is truer of Jorge Bergoglio than of any of the other cardinals who sat alongside him in the Sistine Chapel. And given the power invested in his office, it's almost impossible to overestimate the scale of the catastrophe represented by his election.